Section 3 of Examining the U.S. Capitol Attack by the U.S. Senate. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section C. The Attack. January 6, 2021 marked the most significant breach of the Capitol in over 200 years. Seven hours elapsed between when the security perimeter was first breached and when USCP declared the building secure. On that day, officers faced violent physical and verbal assaults. Three officers and four other individuals ultimately lost their lives. The following section provides a high-level overview of the attack on the Capitol and some of the efforts of the brave men and women who worked to repel the attack. 1. Events of January 6. On November 7th, with some states still counting votes, the major news networks projected that Joe Biden had secured enough electoral votes to win the 2020 presidential election. In response, President Trump issued a statement that he planned to pursue legal challenges to election results in certain states. Nearly all cases were ultimately dismissed or withdrawn. By December 14th, all 50 states and the District of Columbia had certified their respective election results, which totaled 306 electoral votes for Biden and 232 for Trump. Following the state certification, President Trump continued to assert that the election was stolen from him. His statements focused on the January 6th counting of the Electoral College votes during a joint session of Congress. The process in Congress on January 6th is based on a federal law that allows Congress to consider objections to a state certification of its electors. If both a member of the House and a member of the Senate object to a state certification of electors, it requires a congressional vote on whether to reject that state's electors. Congress has only voted on objections twice in the 133 years since enacting this statute prior to 2020. Pro-Trump groups planned rallies for January 6th that President Trump promoted. And on January 5th, President Trump announced that he would speak during the Save America rally at the White House ellipse. On the morning of January 6th, thousands of people began gathering across Washington, D.C. Law enforcement agencies, including USCP and MPD, were monitoring the demonstrators as early as 6 o'clock a.m. and releasing demonstration updates throughout the day. Most demonstrators headed to the Ellipse, near the White House, for the Save America rally, where then-President Trump would speak. By 10.30 a.m., a USCP demonstration update indicated that somewhere between 25,000 and 30,000 people were at the Ellipse, the 10.30 a.m. USCP update also noted that organizers of the rally planned to march to the Capitol after the president's speech. In addition to those demonstrators at the Ellipse, other demonstrators headed directly to the Capitol complex. By 11 a.m., USCP was aware of large crowds around the Capitol building, including a group of approximately 200 Proud Boys. Throughout the city, law enforcement agencies were aware of and responding to reports of suspicious packages and individuals with firearms. 
President Trump began his address just before noon. During the next 75 minutes, the president continued his claims of election fraud and encouraged his supporters to go to the Capitol. President Trump's speech is included in its entirety in Appendix B. Before the president finished his address, crowds began leaving the ellipse for the Capitol. USCP received reports of, quote, a very large group heading to the U.S. Capitol from eastbound on Pennsylvania Avenue, unquote. By 12.45 p.m., quote, what looked like a wall of people suddenly arrived about a block west of the Capitol, unquote. At the same time, USCP received a report of a pipe bomb at the Republican National Committee headquarters. Law enforcement officials would discover a similar pipe bomb at the Democratic National Committee headquarters shortly after 1 p.m. Footnote. As a precaution, USCP cleared residences and businesses near the Republican and Democratic National Committee headquarters. USCP also ordered the evacuation of two office buildings nearest to the location of the explosive devices, the Cannon House office building and the James Madison Memorial Building of the Library of Congress. Returning to the text, while responding to these explosive devices, USCP officers discovered a vehicle containing a firearm and 11 Molotov cocktails. At the Capitol, a large group amassed near the Capitol reflecting pool. At approximately 12.53 p.m., individuals within that group picked up one of the metal bike racks that demarcated USCP's security perimeter and shoved it into the USCP officers standing guard. This marked the initial breach of USCP's outer security perimeter. Crowds began to flow onto the Capitol's west front grounds. All available USCP units were ordered to respond to the west front. Five minutes after the initial breach, Mr. Sund called MPD Acting Chief Robert Conti to request immediate assistance. Footnote. In his own testimony before the committees, Mr. Sund did not indicate when he called Acting Chief Conti. He did, however, state that by 12.50 p.m. he understood the situation to be deteriorating rapidly and at 12.53 p.m. called an MPD assistant chief to request assistance. Returning to the text, nearby MPD officers began to arrive at the west front of the Capitol within minutes, where MPD bicycle patrol officers temporarily reestablished a perimeter. At approximately 1 o'clock p.m., a USCP inspector ordered a lockdown of the Capitol building. At 1.01 p.m., Mr. Sund also requested assistance from the United States Secret Service. Mr. Sund has stated that he also sought approval from the House and Senate SAAs to request National Guard support. As the situation outside continued to deteriorate, Inside the Capitol building, Congress was convening in a joint session to certify results of the Electoral College vote. Vice President Pence, who presided over the joint session, gaveled in at 1.03 p.m. 
President Trump concluded his speech at 1.10 p.m. At 1.12 p.m., the two chambers separated and began to debate objections to the certification of Arizona's Electoral College votes. After overrunning USCP's security perimeter on the west front of the building, rioters pressed towards the Capitol building, climbing the inaugural platform and scaling walls. The only remaining security perimeter consisted of the USCP officers positioned around the grounds, who were overwhelmed and outnumbered. USCP officers attempted to hold back the rioters with chemical munitions, such as oleoresin capsicum, or OC spray, more commonly known as pepper spray. Muriel Bowser, mayor of Washington, D.C., called the Secretary of the Army, Ryan McCarthy, at approximately 1.34 p.m. to seek National Guard support. Footnote. According to the Department of Defense, Mayor Bowser's call came at 1.34 p.m. The office of the mayor indicated to the committees that Mayor Bowser did not speak to Secretary McCarthy until after 1.49 p.m. Returning to the text, by 1.49 p.m., rioters had breached the Upper West Terrace. At 1.49 p.m., Mr. Sund called William Walker, D.C. National Guard Commanding General, to request immediate assistance. At the same time, MPD declared a riot at the Capitol. Two minutes later, at 1.51 p.m., Mr. Sund activated USCP's mutual aid agreement with national capital region law enforcement entities. At 2 p.m., then-Assistant Chief Pittman also ordered a lockdown of the Capitol building. Rioters continued to push toward the Capitol building, reaching the Rotunda Steps by 2.06 p.m. and the House Plaza by 2.08 p.m. Ms. Pittman then expanded the lockdown to cover the entire Capitol complex. At 2.10 p.m., rioters breached the final barricade on the west front and northwest side of the Capitol, quickly approaching an entrance near the Senate chamber. Also at 2.10 p.m., House SAA Irving and Senate SAA Stenger issued an emergency declaration on behalf of the Capitol Police Board and formally approved requesting National Guard assistance. A minute later, rioters smashed through first-floor windows on the Capitol's south side, making a hole big enough to climb through. A stream of protesters entered, with two individuals kicking open a nearby door to let others into the Capitol. According to reports, officers attempted to disperse the group with pepper balls and smoke bombs. At 2.13 p.m., two minutes after rioters breached the building, the Senate went into recess. At 2.14 p.m., USCP officer Eugene Goodman redirected rioters away from the Senate chamber. Vice President Pence and congressional leaders were evacuated to secure locations. An order to lock down the House and Senate chambers was issued at 2.15 p.m. The House declared a brief recess at 2.18 p.m. All active USCP Civil Disturbance Unit, or CDU, platoons 
were deployed to either the house side of the Capitol or the rotunda. After receiving the board's 2.10 p.m. authorization, Mr. Sund urgently requested National Guard support. During a teleconference around 2.30 p.m. with Pentagon officials and D.C. government officials, including Mayor Bowser, Director of the D.C. Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency, Dr. Christopher Rodriguez, and Acting MPD Chief Conti, Mr. Sund pleaded for immediate backup. According to the testimony of Mr. Sund, Acting MPD Chief Conti and Commanding General Walker, officials from the Department of the Army at DOD headquarters, particularly Lieutenant Generals Walter Piat and Charles Flynn, responded that it was not their best military advice to support the request because they did not, quote, like the optics of the National Guard standing a line at the Capitol, unquote. At 2.43 p.m., rioters broke the glass of a door to the Speaker's lobby, a hallway that would have given the rioters direct access to the House chamber. When the rioters tried to lift Ashley Babbitt through the opening, a USCP officer fatally shot her. Footnote. On April 14th, DOJ announced that it had closed its investigation into Ms. Babbitt's death, citing insufficient evidence to support a criminal prosecution of the USCP officer. Returning to the text, less than 10 minutes later, rioters breached the Senate chamber. In the House chamber, USCP officers barricaded the door with furniture and drew their weapons to hold off rioters. The last members were evacuated from the House chamber by 2.57 p.m. After 3 p.m., additional reinforcements from federal agencies began to arrive, and USCP turned to extracting and securing congressional staff. A number of agencies and entities provided assistance, including DHS, the FBI, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, the Montgomery County Police Department, the Arlington County Police Department, the Fairfax Police Department, and Virginia State Troopers. With this help, USCP secured the Senate and House chambers, along with the basement, subways, first floor, and crypts by 4.28 p.m. D.C. National Guard personnel began arriving at the Capitol at approximately 5.20 p.m. By 6.14 p.m., USCP, D.C. National Guard, and MPD successfully established a security perimeter on the west side of the Capitol building. At 8 p.m., after completing a sweep of the Capitol grounds with partner law enforcement agencies, USCP declared the Capitol secure, and the Senate reconvened to resume consideration of the objection to Arizona's electoral votes. Shortly afterwards, at approximately 9 p.m., the House reconvened. After rejecting objections to the counting of electoral votes from Arizona and Pennsylvania, the joint session of Congress officially affirmed the results of the Electoral College at 3.42 a.m. on January 7, formally declaring Joseph Biden 
and Kamala Harris as winners of the 2020 presidential election. 2. Communication with Capitol Staff Both USCP and the Sergeants-at-Arms alert employees working at the Capitol complex about ongoing security threats through the use of automated email alerts. But primary responsibility for security notification to senators and Senate staff resides with the Senate Sergeant-at-Arms. In the days leading up to and around 11.39 a.m. on January 6th, the Senate SAA issued a reminder to staff of, quote, several First Amendment activities, unquote, scheduled to take place throughout the District of Columbia. The alert reassured employees that USCP and the SAA were, quote, aware of these First Amendment activities and monitoring impacts to congressional activities and to support the safety and security of senators and staff. USCP had additional personnel throughout Capitol grounds, unquote. Although USCP issued several email alerts on January 6, the Senate SAA did not issue any Senate-wide email alerts during the attack. Footnote. Senate SAA sent alerts to emergency coordinators for individual Senate offices. Returning to the text, USCP issued 19 email alerts between 11.15 a.m. and 7.24 p.m. on January 6, more than half of which were sent before the Capitol building was breached. Still, those alerts contained little information or context for employees. They simply noted that USCP was investigating suspicious packages, informed employees of road closures, and ordered staff to relocate from the Cannon House office building. Although Ms. Pittman ordered a lockdown of the Capitol building at 2 p.m., Capitol employees were not made aware of this until 2.10 p.m. The alert informed staff that no entry or exit was permitted, but that staff were still able to, quote, move throughout the buildings, unquote. At 2.18 p.m., USCP circulated an updated warning, quote, Capitol staff, due to a security threat inside the building, immediately move inside your office or the nearest office. Take emergency equipment and visitors. Close, lock, and stay away from external doors and windows. If you are in a public space, find a place to hide or seek cover. Remain quiet and silence electronics. Once you are in a safe location, immediately check in with your office emergency contact. No one will be permitted to enter or exit the building until directed by USCP, unquote. USCP resent the same message three additional times on January 6th at 3.41 p.m., 4.09 p.m., and 6.44 p.m. No further context, information, or direction was provided via these automated emergency alert systems. 
Staff were not informed until 7.24 p.m. that, quote, if anyone must leave, unquote, they could do so via certain doors. Footnote. According to press accounts, these vague and sparse communications left many congressional employees who were working on January 6th feeling helpless and fearful. One congressional staffer described how his colleagues were forced to evacuate and shelter in the halls of Longworth for hours, not fully aware of everything that was happening above ground. Returning to the text. 3. Experience of Law Enforcement Officers Throughout the seven hours of the riot on the Capitol grounds, law enforcement officers faced verbal and absolutely brutal, violent, physical abuse. One officer described an interaction with a group of protesters during the evacuation of the Senate. Quote, We stopped several men in full tactical gear, and they stated, quote, you better get out of our way, boy, or we'll go through you to get the senators, unquote. Recounting initial encounters with the crowd along the metal bike racks, another officer recalled, We did what we could against impossible odds, and a volatile crowd which many times threatened us with phrases like, We're gonna kill you, we're gonna murder you, and then them. You guys are traitors and should be killed. I felt at this time a tangible fear that maybe I, or some of my colleagues, might not make it home alive, unquote. Other officers have publicly described instances of racial abuse from the crowd. Many were called traitors and Nazis. An officer described being called a pawn of China and seeing someone give a Nazi salute to the Capitol behind me. Officer Harry Dunn told ABC News, quote, I got called an N-word a couple dozen times today protecting the Capitol building, unquote. He also described black officers feeling targeted because of their race, saying, quote, We fought against not just people that hated what we represented, but they hate our skin color also, unquote. Officers responding to the attack suffered a range of injuries in the line of duty. Many officers have recounted repeated attacks with chemical irritants from the crowd, including bear spray and insecticide. One officer stated that he was, quote, sprayed in the eyes with some kind of chemical irritant that was far stronger than any pepper spray I have ever had used against me in training, unquote. Other officers reported burns, breathing, and lung complications, and their eyes sealing shut from irritation due to repeated exposure to the chemical irritants. Captain Carnache Mendoza testified to the committees that she received chemical burns to her face, which had not healed nearly two months after the attack. Officers were also physically assaulted with a range of objects thrown from the crowds, pinned against surfaces, and beaten with flagpoles and other weapons carried or found by rioters, including frozen water bottles. For example, rioters disassembled a fence in front of the inaugural platform and used the pieces to assault officers. 
One officer described the fear experienced that day, stating, quote, At one point, I was pushed so hard and crushed in between people that I could not breathe. This was a frightening situation, unquote. Another officer recounted the various types of weapons used by the crowd. Quote, the objects thrown at us varied in size, shape, and consistency. Some were frozen cans and bottles, rebar from the construction, bricks, liquids, pepper spray, bear spray, sticks of various widths, pipes, bats. Some were armed with guns and some had tasers or something similar. I specifically remembered being sprayed with bear spray at least six to eight times while tussling with rioters who were trying to use the bike racks against us as weapons, unquote. Approximately 140 law enforcement officers reported injuries suffered during the attack. Footnote. USCP reported 73 injured officers and MPD reported 65 injured officers. Quote, many more sustained injuries from the assault, scratches, bruises, eyes burning from bear mace, that they did not even bother to report, unquote. Returning to the text, the Capitol Police Labor Committee released a statement recounting some of the more serious injuries. Quote, I have officers who were not issued helmets prior to the attack who have sustained brain injuries. One officer has two cracked ribs and two smashed spinal discs. One officer is going to lose his eye, and another was stabbed with a metal fence stake, unquote. Patrick Burke, executive director of the Washington, D.C. Police Foundation, reported that one officer suffered a heart attack after being attacked several times with a stun gun. Three officers lost their lives following the attack. USCP officer Brian Sicknick, a 13-year veteran and member of the first responder unit, was stationed on the west front of the Capitol, where rioters attacked him with bear spray. Officer Sicknick passed away at 9.30 p.m. on January 7th. Officer Howard Liebengood, a 16-year veteran of USCP, died on January 9th. Officer Jeffrey Smith, a 12-year veteran of MPD, died on January 15th. Despite the hardships they faced, officers engaged in countless acts of bravery and heroism. One officer noted that, quote, the officers inside all behaved admirably and heroically, and even outnumbered, went on the offensive and took the Capitol back, unquote. Another officer described a situation where an officer went above and beyond to help out however possible. Quote, a light-duty officer in a suit from the Capitol Division came up to me at the triage site on the Capitol Visitor Center landing and asked how he could help. I told him that we needed bottles of water in a bad way for rinsing eyes out. I figured he would go back to the detail where there was a pile but he instead went to the Senate carryout and returned with a few cases of water, being carried by him and the Senate carryout cook, still wearing his white apron and paper hat. They brought us smart water, seriously expensive stuff, unquote.
Another officer stated that he, quote, saw officers responding to save members and staff in offices, unquote. Quote, saw many officers get sprayed with irritants and saw officers standing in the way of the bloodthirsty mob to prevent them from achieving their goals, unquote. Describing the aftermath of that day, another officer recounted, quote, I wandered around the building for a little bit, looking at the wreckage and trying to take everything in before people cleaned up. Doors and windows were broken and had been barricaded with furniture and display cases. There was broken glass, trash, banners, and signs. I went down to the Lower West Terrace through the tunnel, and it was just trashed. Knives, baseball bats, flagpoles, banners, CDU shields, body armor, pants, socks, shoes, hats, uniform items, jackets, wallets, cash, phones, flags, and signs littered the ground. Everything was covered in white from the tear gas, and I could still smell the pepper spray." Unquote. End of section three.